Welcome to the Academy Podcast, where our mission is to improve lives through education, information, and some cool stories. My name is Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. I'm a professor of neuroscience and neurology and the senior associate dean for faculty affairs at the Kirk Kikorian School of Medicine at UNLV. Today, our guest is Dr. Mario Gaspar de Alba. Dr. Gaspar de Alba is a developmental behavioral pediatrician. He specializes in autism spectrum disorder, and he's also the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI, here at the Kirk Kikorian School of Medicine. On the surface, it may not seem like autism and DEI are related, but through this podcast, you're going to see a very interesting thread that ties these two together. So, Mario, Dr. Mario Gaspar de Alba, um, I, you know, I'm so excited to have you here as a dear friend, first of all, but then there are some really cool topics so, that we're going to get into. We're going to talk about autism. We're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, um, both of which are specialties of yours, both of which actually overlap in surprising ways that we're going to talk about, and then a whole host of other things. But we'll start off talking mm-hmm. about you. Okay. Um, okay. Your least favorite subject awesome. <laughs> that awesome. you like to talk about. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about where you're from, sure. uh, you know, how'd you get into medicine? And and it, uh, and in your case, it's, uh, well, I'll let you tell the story, okay? okay? okay. So where are you from originally? Okay. Something that you and I share in common. All right. Well, first, thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Um, and we are dear friends or I wouldn't be here with you. So <laughs> We are at least we now, are, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm from El Paso, Texas. I was born and raised there. So border town's been in the news recently. A lot yeah. of immigration things going on. Um, but really, you know, I, I grew up, I'm the oldest of four. Um, my parents both went to college. Uh, my dad's from Mexico. My mom's from there, the El Paso area. And uh, yeah, just growing up, um, you know, I always wanted to, I always had an idea of what I wanted to do um, early on and. Uh, some of the students have heard me say, but early on, I honestly, I wanted to be Batman. And and when that dream died and I realized my backstory wasn't good, I thought, well, what else is there? And so my uh, my my pediatrician at the time was really good, a really nice guy. And he would he would always ask, what do you want to do? He was always, you know, the assumption was I was going to do something. And so um, we talked over the years and eventually we got around to medicine. He said, oh, you'd be a great doctor. And that was pretty much all it took. And, you know, I was motivated and He'd always ask me, how are your grades? How are you doing? How's school? I even saw him when I went to college. I'd come back home for vacations, and I'd see him. Um, he was great. He was that's, great. It, it's amazing, isn't it, how you have this interaction, this twist, this turn on the road that yeah. takes you in a different direction. Okay, what is his name? Lawrence Nicky. Lawrence Nicky. And Nicky. tell me why you want to be Batman. And and I will confess to you, yeah. Batman is my favorite superhero because he's well, human, yeah, right? Exactly. But he does all these amazing but he things. He does all these things. That's and exactly he's got right. the best cars. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. so wealthy, right? Um, fairly good looking, cool cars, great outfits, and smart. And I thought these are all things like, I could do that. You could well, do I, that. I, I thought I could do that. You could do yeah. that. The, the interesting thing is, fairly good looking depends on who's playing Batman, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. But, uh, well, I grew up in the Adam West years. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I jumped through the Adam West years uh-huh. and became Batman fan around the Christian Bale Batman uh-huh. Begins time. Darker. Darker. Darker and I think kind of a cool. Agreed. But yeah. Agreed. Okay, so uh, Batman, at least at that time, didn't mm-hmm. work out for you. Right, right. You have a mentor along the way mm-hmm. um, who 
who took an interest in you. Isn't it yeah. fascinating, right? It is. That, that he just decides, I'm going to take an interest in this guy. Yeah. Because right? you don't have a family history of medicine, I don't. right? I don't. And it's interesting because a lot of our students, a lot of physicians, mm-hmm. have a family history, right? They have a path that's been walked for them. Yeah. And you really didn't have that. Right. Um, okay, so take us a little bit further on. You, sure. You do well in high school. You decide to go to college, mm-hmm. okay? So um, so I go to college with the, the idea that I'm going to go to medical school. And probably second, third year of college, I, uh, I take the required pre-med class. It's just your classic pre-medical class, you know, 300 people, 7 o'clock on a Friday, you know, to weed out people that really are interested in going. And, uh, yeah, first day. Uh, you know, the guy, the pre-med advisor teaching the class says, the class, you know, look left, look right. You know, half of you will not make it into medical school. And I thought, well, that's not great. <laughs> it's a little intimidating. And I didn't like the guy. Yeah. Plain and simple. And so my, my, my own personality was such that, well, I'm not going to ask him for any help. I don't need him. Yeah, you'll show him. I'll, just, I'll show him. <laughs> I don't need him. Yeah, so consequently, my circuitous route to medicine, um, my uh, applications to medical school were three. I applied to three schools in Texas, um, not knowing that that was unusual, that you really ought to apply to many, many more. <laughs> I didn't get in. Um, so the year after, when I was going to reapply, I was working as a pharmacy technician, and I met some surgeons, some transplant surgeons who had gone to school in Guadalajara in Mexico, and they said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm waiting to reapply. Why don't you check out the school in Guadalajara? I hadn't thought about it, didn't even know about it, and so I did. And I checked it out. I liked it. I went with the idea that I would start school, reapply in the States, and if I didn't get in, at least I'd already right. started. Right? Yeah. I hadn't wasted any time. Um, I never reapplied. I really liked it down there. I enjoyed living in Mexico. I enjoyed the school and the things we got to do. And then it did cost me an extra year because I had to do a fifth pathway program mm-hmm. in New York yeah. um, before I started residency. But yeah, that was the kind of a circuitous path, but it was, I think it was good for me. It's a, it was, yeah, imagine that the experiences that you had mm-hmm. were very different than if you had gone to it a was. U.S. medical school. It was. Yeah. And and then you followed that up with with what would be considered more traditional training, right in yeah. the states. Yeah. So when I when I applied to after that, uh, it's called Fifth Pathway. Or mm-hmm. after that, I uh, applied to residencies. Did a pediatric residency in Albuquerque, the Children's Hospital. Uh, from there, I worked for a couple of years as a general pediatrician. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do a fellowship, but I also had a family, and so I needed to make some money for a little while. Mm-hmm. So two years was about right applied to fellowships and then went to a developmental behavioral fellowship in North Carolina at UNC. And what drove you into the field of autism, Hmm. autism spectrum disorder, right? So in residency, um, I had an attending, so all the residents were assigned an advisor. And so my advisor was a general pediatrician, Javier Aceves, super nice guy. And we'd talk about things and, and I saw patients at his clinic and I noticed that his interest was always development. It was always behavioral developmental things. And I started to express to him that I kind of liked that part. And so he said, well, why don't, you, why don't you go to a conference? I'll send you to a conference. So he found some scholarship money in the program, sent me to a developmental behavioral conference, and I was hooked. I'm like, this is really interesting. 
You know, uh, I'll tell you what's interesting. It's uh, this has come up twice mm-hmm. in the story, and I and I know it's come up multiple times in in your life. Yeah, somebody mm-hmm. takes an interest, mm-hmm. right? And and I don't think it's charity, right? I mean, I think right. that you earn right. that interest. You there's something that they see in you. Mm-hmm. Um, but isn't it amazing? Like as as you being the person who's the recipient of it, yeah. and knowing you, I'm sure you don't say, oh, yeah, look at me. Of course, you're going to take interest, right? That's <laughs> opposite of you. But but it's amazing, isn't it, yeah. how that changes a person's life? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's. And I tell the, the students in my role in DEI, right, a lot of what I do is work in the pipeline programs. And that's why, mm-hmm. honestly, because I feel like there are students, there are kids who just don't know what they can do, right? And, and they need somebody to let them know, you can yeah. do this. You can totally do this, and you can be successful. And so I, I feel like I can give a little bit back right. that way in yeah. this position. It's, you know, it's nice to have the perspective of what a helping hand can do yeah. for you mm-hmm. and then be able to, to pay that back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So to speak. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, and I think you do it in a lot of, you specifically mm-hmm. do it in a lot of ways in addition to the pipeline program as mm-hmm. well. Thanks. So, yeah, you're welcome. So I, I will say, let me say that I, yeah. I think... In just looking at my own history, the other thing that I think is important in that in that kind of that relationship where somebody's helping you or takes an interest mm-hmm. in you is really your part, right? So so who knows if my pre-med advisor would have taken an interest in me. I didn't even give him a chance, right? That was my issue, right? my issue with I don't need you. Um, and that's something else I try to get across. Like, it's okay. Like, it's okay to need help. It's okay to ask for help. And I, and I think... Sometimes the, the students that were really trying to help, you know, first-generation students or students from more difficult backgrounds, I think they're less likely to ask for that help. And so that's kind of, I, I, I try to bring that perspective, too, that, look, I, I went through that. Like, I was at a point where I didn't like, I don't need you. I really did, <laughs> but I said I didn't, and you know, it cost me a little bit. It's interesting because what, the way that you're, what you're describing mm-hmm. is, uh, is one of two things that are kind of related one, I don't need the help yeah. is an ego statement. And two, mm-hmm. I don't need the help is a defense mechanism, yeah. right? Absolutely. And, and I think both of those things could, could play a role. And then when you talk about people who don't have a path forged for them, yeah. they're more likely to, to have those ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, screw yeah. you if you're not going to help <laughs> right. me. Right, unfortunately. And, um, but I do think it's really cool that, that people reached out and, to your point, that you reciprocated by doing a really good job. Yeah. Um, and um, and now that you get to you're paying this back yeah. all the way through. Yeah. Hopefully. So, you know, we talked about before we started today, mm-hmm. we talked about the uh, in, in my mind, at least I see a really clear bridge between or intersection, I guess, between DEI mm-hmm. and autism. So we're going to start talking about these separately, but then we're going to add them together in okay. just a minute. But um, let's talk a little bit about autism from a background perspective sure. and in some of the uh, the statistics that are out there mm-hmm. and some of them that are a little bit surprising mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I've got a couple in mind, but if you sure. could kind of give us, what are the things people need to know about sure. autism sure. spectrum? So I think the, the, probably the most important thing is that it's, it shows up really early. I mean, you can see it really early for most kids. You can see it really early and it shouldn't get passed over because Early intervention is the best intervention. It makes the most difference, and so that's critical. People understanding that um, if you have a child who who isn't speaking how they should, or, or having 
other social delays, maybe their eye contact's not great or they're kind of quiet. Like, don't skip over those things. Really think about it because you should recognize those things early. And, and there should be some concern, at least somebody taking a look that can tell you, oh, no, you know what, you're okay, uh, versus just thinking, no, it's fine. You know, this is just their personality. That's really important. Um, the, the diagnosis, the prevalence of autism has really gone up ever since it's been tracked, you know, over these last 23 years. You know, they've been tracking it. It's been going up steady. And there's theories about why that is, and I don't think anybody really knows. Uh, part of it, uh, I think everybody will agree that part of it is just our better recognition. Right. There's more awareness, and so there's more recognition of it. Um, there are other, you know, other thoughts and research that has, has looked at factors like aging parents, you know, older parents, um, premature infants. We have more premature infants who are born younger, you know, who, who survive and do well. Well, that's another risk factor for autism. So there are things that we see that are definitely increasing the numbers, um, but I think it's a combination of a lot of things. And so people need to be aware that it's out there and it's common and it's not something to be afraid of. It's just something to recognize and, and try to get help for these kids as soon as possible. So the, the diagnosis, there's a lot of aspects of mm -hmm. autism that has some degree of controversy around it. Yeah. And the di in, in the increased number, mm -hmm. right, you hear things like, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago in the U.S., you know, one out of 100. And right. then it was one out of 56. And then it was one out of 48 and so forth. Yeah. Um, you know, some of that, like you said, is because we've got different... Uh, ways of seeing it, different mm -hmm. diagnosis aspects and so forth. Some of it is maybe because it is actually increasing. Yeah, right. And then uh, then the question is, and so that's a maybe, mm -hmm. and then some of that is, well, with that maybe, why, if it is true, why is it true? Well, maybe it's because of some genetic factors and right. so forth. And you've got these layers on layers on oh, layers yeah. of things we don't really know, mm -hmm. which is amazing, right? Because yeah. it's not like it's a brand new syndrome, <laughs> right. right? Right. It's been around. And, and you know, for you, uh, because this is your primary work mm -hmm. that you do, mm -hmm. you obviously you see it every single day mm -hmm. and you've got waiting lists of people, very concerned parents, right? Yeah. I, I just want to say this real quick because I, I, I think about two different uh, types of parents, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I've experienced this, I'm sure you have, a uh, type of parent who wants to get their child in to yeah. do the diagnosis right away and they're, they'll do it. And the other type who does not want to get their child in because they don't want Correct. the diagnosis. Right. Can you talk right. a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, so there, I think there's a hesitancy uh, in one group because they don't want the diagnosis because there there may be some stigma or they don't want to feel that loss that may come with that diagnosis, this loss of expectation or what my child might be able to do, and that's totally understandable, right? That's hard. Um, and then the other group who is either very interested in the diagnosis so that they can get additional services uh, and or just interested in the diagnosis so that they can move forward, right? So you can go, okay, what's next? Like, what can we do to help? Um, and and you, I really try to help the parents that come in, that, that, that first group that maybe doesn't want to or is afraid and not sure, I think it's because they don't understand. Yeah. And, and so I feel like as a, as a physician, you know, we should be educators, you know, not just because we teach at a school, but educating our patients. And so educating them on this isn't a hopeless situation. I mean, this is, there is something that you can do about it and you can help. And there's lots of things that are going to help your child move forward from here. And so 
it's this isn't the end of your road that you've gotten this diagnosis. We're at the beginning of your road too. Okay, how far can we get? What can we do? And don't be afraid. And I think that's a really important message, right? You it provides you a, an opportunity going forward. Yeah. Um, and s- instead of, I mean, yeah, there's no doubt there's fear around it, For but sure. um, but understanding that early intervention becomes something that's yeah. really valuable. Yeah. And and it and it is you're either going to be in camp one or camp two as mm-hmm. far as your uh, it's a yes or a no. Right. And so, you know, finding that out as early as you can and doing something about it, like you said, can be really helpful. Absolutely. Um, so one more uh, question around mm-hmm. this, the diagnosis piece. Yes. Males are, I believe, uh, 3.6 times more likely or at least diagnosed more right. often. Correct. Right. Uh, so well I'm going to take a, uh, a question from Jenny who okay. – uh, had talked about this. Uh-huh. Um, how autism presents itself mm-hmm. in males mm-hmm. may be different than females. Absolutely. And so the diagnosis is 3.6 to 1 may not be entirely accurate once mm-hmm. we get a better view of how they present themselves. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great question and, and, a, and a really important observation because the, the criteria that we use for diagnosis um, you know, people that, are, that that work in the field, I've, I've heard often say, you know, these criteria were made for boys, mm-hmm. you know, because this is how boys present. Girls don't always present that way. Uh, sometimes they do, right? but sometimes they don't. Uh, and a lot of times what you see is that in the, in the criteria, the A criteria, which are the social criteria, girls do tend to do better there. They just have more skills. They tend to do better. The eye contact's a little better. The engagement's a little better. And it's not even until they're older where you start to recognize, oh, how they do that is off. It's not quite right. Mm-hmm. And the way they do it isn't fostering appropriate back and forth engagement, whether it's verbal or, or otherwise, right? And so it just looks different. And so a lot of times they're diagnosed later, um, sometimes not at all. Um, and, um, you know, as you follow them over time, you may see things like anxiety, right? Because... Imagine living in a world that you don't fully understand what's happening socially all the time or you're not sure what people around you are always referring to. That would be anxiety-provoking, right? That would be concerning. And so uh, they do end up eventually getting help for something, but I'm afraid a lot of them who don't fit nicely into that criteria get missed early on, and they miss out on that opportunity to really get good help. Yeah, this brings up two things that I'm thinking about. One is, you know, uh, until recently... Mm -hmm. The diagnosis of cardiovascular disease between men and women were skewed towards men, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Men have more cardiovascular disease right. and so forth. It's because it presented itself very differently, right? right? right. And, and and now all of a sudden, when the, you see how it presents in women, mm-hmm. women have mysteriously caught up, right. and right. and it's I think it it sounds like it's the same kind of a situation. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that's interesting in what you just said is I saw this video recently where it was, it was a TED Talk, it was a mm-hmm. wonderful TED Talk. A woman was uh, was explaining how she is autistic and had hit it for mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just what you said. You know, she had studied watching people on TV, how they, if, if they got this cue, they responded this way. Yes. But it was a little bit out of sync, right? right? And, and in her case, they thought she was just shy. Mm-hmm. And... And so yeah, I mean it's really interesting the 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 
diagnosis, the number of uh, people who are diagnosed, the gender disparity and these kinds of things, yeah. and the ethnic disparity, yeah. right? Because there's a study in California where it showed that uh, there's a much fewer uh, incidents. It's, it says this, incidents of autism among Hispanics. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, hold on. How? How <laughs> right. is this, right. Right? right? Until you start thinking about why that occurs, which yeah. obviously you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not at all what was presented. Mm. No, yeah. correct. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. that? No, absolutely. So for years, they, there's you know been the reported incidents in uh children of color not having the same prevalence of autism. And, uh, and really, if you look at that, it's not, a, it's not really a numbers issue. It's, it's a health equity issue. It's an access to care and an access to evaluation issue. And so really, the numbers should be the same, and, they, and I'm sure they are very close to the same, um, if these kids could get seen at the same rate, mm-hmm. right, and evaluated at the same rate. I think you'd see numbers that were very close. So, yeah, I think that's an artificial difference. And 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 then, like you said, early intervention becomes right. so important. And mm-hmm. so now if they're not being seen, if they're not mm-hmm. having that early intervention, you know, all of a sudden it becomes yeah. uh, exactly what you said, a health equity issue, yeah. which then brings us to DEI, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. And so uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, uh-huh. um, you are the – Associate Dean for mm-hmm. Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the School of Medicine. A lot of what you do is pipeline yeah. uh, program and really reaching down to the lower uh, grades, even mm-hmm. into junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about two things there, how you got into it in the first sure. place, and then some of the things that you do in the program? Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I didn't start out thinking that this is something I would be doing. Um, when the medical school first was starting, the founding dean, uh, Barbara Atkinson, random call one day and she said, hey, you know, can I meet with you? Yeah, absolutely. Didn't know her. Uh, I met with her and she talked to me about this position and this, you know, the school is starting and we need somebody to do this work. Would you be willing to do it? And my first question was, well, why'd you think of me? <laughs> you know, yeah. why, how did my name come up? Well, uh, Dr. Cosgrove, who had been here before when the school was started, her husband had been my attending during residency. Oh, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> Jeff. Jeff. Paul. And yeah. so, I had been to their house before for residency get-togethers, mm-hmm. and so we had met, and so she brought up my name. So it wasn't because I had any expertise in the area <laughs> or any expressed interest in the area. But when she told me about it, um, it got, you know, just got my wheels turning. I thought, well, that would be a, that'd be a neat experience and an opportunity, mm-hmm. right? An opportunity to, to help and to, to give back. Some of the things we talked about earlier, right? To be able to help um, kids who think maybe they can't do it or who have been, feel put off by the system, right? That, that I might be helpful to them because I've lived some of the things. So that got my interest and I said yes, and I, and I started and I've been learning ever since. Yeah, and, and that's the opportunity yeah. to give back, right? Yeah, for sure. And so now you've got, your, you've got two areas, yeah. right? Yeah. Where um, there, there's a lot of gray zone mm-hmm. in both. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, on the positive side, lots of places to contribute. Yeah. On the negative side, lots of places that need contribution. Right? Correct. I mean, Correct. The, and so, um, so let's, if you don't mind, kind uh-huh. of dance between both because okay. the the idea of so if we take away the title of autism spectrum disorder mm-hmm. and we talk about a group of individuals who are disenfranchised. Yeah. Okay. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, and there are some uniquenesses to those individuals mm -hmm. who have the disorder. Yeah. But disenfranchised individuals and your role in DEI, mm -hmm. right? Can you mm -hmm. talk about that and how those come together for you? Sure. It's a hard dance. Um, I think when you think about these two groups, right, a group of uh, marginalized people in, uh -huh. in, in healthcare or in health education, and then these, the group of people that are just marginalized in life, right? I mean, it's, it's similar, right? People, it's, it's a lack of understanding where they come from, right? Maybe what their lived experience is, what they can contribute, because they can. I mean, they, everybody's contribution is different. Mm -hmm. and, and this group of people that, you know, I'll call neurodivergent, they're different in the way they think about things, they have things to contribute, right? And their way of thinking about things can be really very illuminating and very interesting because it's very different oftentimes. And the group of students or pipeline students who we try to attract to the school, again, the reason we try to attract them is because of their lived experiences, their backgrounds, the things that they've done in their lives that can help them be better physicians and help their classmates learn about through those, their experiences how to be better physicians, more empathetic, more compassionate, um, thinking about things like why my patient isn't actually taking their medication. Maybe they don't have a car and the bus didn't come or right. any number of reasons. So, so I see how that, that both marginalized groups can, can suffer if we don't generally appreciate what they can contribute. I, and I think it's important that, you know, a lot of what you're doing is mm -hmm. working directly with the marginalized groups mm -hmm. So you're talking about. But you're a medical educator too, mm -hmm. and so you get to work with those people who are going to be future physicians yeah. in educating them about working with, Yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, it's really cool that you get to contribute on both ends of that. Yeah, yeah. no, it's neat. So uh, it'll seem like we're going back and forth, but again, sure, I sure. see these overlapping okay. quite a bit. Um, so the genetic aspect mm -hmm. of it, right, mm -hmm. the, uh, of autism. Yeah. Just like with everything else, it's a little bit murky yeah. about it. Right. I, I read that there were, you know, 400 likely uh, autism genes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then you're trying to make a yeah. make sense of the jumble, right? Right. So, right. you know, this is your background, so I'm not yeah. going to step into it. But sure. can you can you talk to us a little bit about? Sure. Well, well, so it's interesting because we know that there's a genetic aspect to autism because the prevalence changes based on the number of first degree relatives that you mm -hmm. have with autism, right? It, it goes up. And so that certainly it's genetic. Um, the problem has been in isolating genes or groups of genes even that are responsible for that. And so um, of all the candidate genes, right? You can find changes in those candidate genes in individuals that don't have autism and you don't find them in all the individuals who have autism. So it's been hard to really nail down what is the genetic component. But, but honestly, I think that speaks more to what the cause of autism is. Like, where does it really come from? Uh, and some of it is genetic, but some of it's something else. Mm -hmm. And we just haven't figured that out yet, right? Um, the, the immune system has been implicated at, at various times and in various ways. Still ongoing research on that, right? Specifically around inflammation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. inflammation. You know, the, there's there's been research on um, maternal autoantibodies mm -hmm. and during pregnancy. Um, there's been, you know, treatment tried using intravenous immunoglobulins, 
right? That that have in some cases been helpful, and so there there there's something there. We just don't know exactly what it is yet. So it's this, it's this, um, and and that's why I think that's why I appreciate the autism puzzle piece as a symbol. Yeah. Because it really, for me, it truly is a puzzle. Where do all these things fit together, right? And and I think we're looking at autism as is one thing when really it's one diagnosis, one group of symptoms. But I think what we're going to find someday is that the causes are, are many. Right. And, and so hopefully we get there because once you start figuring out where it's coming from, treatment gets narrowed and it can become more effective. It's, a, it, you know, it's interesting because it's a spectrum. Absolutely. And so there may be things that contribute at one point of the spectrum, but not at another point. Right. And like you said, there's, you know, most things in life are nature and nurture, right? Some right. interaction right. between those things. Yeah. And so it is a puzzle. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an incredibly complex puzzle. It is. And so for you as a practitioner mm-hmm. in the area, how many, how many uh, individuals do you see roughly in a year for yeah. diagnosis? In a year, probably, I don't know, around 200. And, uh, and you know, I've, been, I've sat through some of these with you uh-huh. before. It's uh-huh. an extensive process it is. all the way it through. Is. Yeah. Uh, my uh, youngest sister is a special ed teacher, mm-hmm. and we were talking about this. She asked yeah. about, uh, you know, co-diagnoses, right? Mm-hmm. ADHD, right. Uh, autism, so forth and so mm-hmm. on. And and one of the things that was fascinating to me watching was how you were sort of separating out the potential co-diagnosis mm-hmm. in these. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that a yeah, little bit, sure. how you do that. So that's, a, so that's tough a lot of times because... Um, in the past, you know, uh, before they changed the diagnostic criteria back in 2013, about 10 years ago, you couldn't diagnose ADHD with autism. In that, now we recognize, we'll, we'll know that kids with autism will often have those symptoms, right? Because ADHD, again, is a group of symptoms. And so the hard part is figuring out, well, where are those symptoms coming from, mm-hmm. right? Is a child not paying attention because the their frontal lobe doesn't allow them to pay attention. Their, their neurons in that frontal lobe aren't firing at the right rate to help them pay attention, or are they just not interested, yeah. right? So in a child with autism, could be either or. could be both. Right. They're not picking up the social right. cues that this should be important. That they should, for them right, to that pay it should be important, or, they should, or that everybody else is paying attention. Oh, yeah. I should be paying attention. Or, or even um, it makes my teacher happy when I pay attention, Yeah. right? And so they don't pick up on that. And with ADHD, they're just, you know, they're thinking about a hundred other things, but the, but it looks the same. And so a lot of times it's hard to, to peel that apart. And so fortunately, really, the idea is, okay, well, we can, we know how to treat the autism and we know how to treat ADHD. And even if we don't know where exactly those symptoms are coming mm-hmm. from, well, we can try to apply those treatments and see how that works. Where does that get us? Right. Because there's so much crossover. And it's the same with anything. It's the same with anxiety symptoms, right? I mean, are are they not engaging because they're anxious or shy? Are they not engaging because they don't know how to do it and they're not interested in doing right. it, right? So it's kind of tough. And the the repetitive behaviors, same thing. What's, what does that have to do with obsessive compulsive disorder? Is that a different thing or is it part of the autism? Again, so much crossover. And it, it, for me, it makes it very interesting yeah. to see patients. That's what really brought me to the field, that it, every kid is interesting, right? When I did general pediatrics, it's like, oh, you have an ear infection. Oh, you have diarrhea. Oh, you have a cold. <laughs> like, okay. I've seen that this was a fun. thousand times, right. yeah. Yeah. But yeah. this, every kid is so different, and it's really interesting for me. It, it piques my interest. Maybe yeah. it 
maybe it makes my ADHD manageable. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so when you start looking at the the spectrum and, and ADHD and anxiety in these areas, yeah. it makes sense if you think about from the perspective of the the uh, stimulation filter, right? Yeah. That, that as we're talking, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. we have a sense of where we should look. We have a sense of what we should listen to. Mm-hmm. Different stimuli have different weightings for yeah. us because yeah. either we've learned that or something else. Right. But people with all three of the, uh, the conditions that you're talking mm-hmm. about, they don't have the same refined filter, right? right? And so if you're hearing everything at the same volume, seeing everything, all stimuli yeah. are presented the same way, wow, that's got to be overwhelming. Hard. Yeah, yeah, difficult. I, I had a uh, very dear friend uh, in grade school all the way through high school. We're still really good friends. Um, his brother, uh, who's a couple years older than us, mm-hmm. had autism. I was a kid, right? I had no idea. And this is like a thousand years ago. Um, So I had no idea what this was. Uh And two of the things I remember specifically, one, he was, he was sitting in the back seat with me, my friend and his mom were in the front seat. And um, he started the repetitive behavior and then just launched forward and bit my friend on the shoulder, which at the time I thought was crazy. Right. Now looking at it, and the ability to be able to express something that they they don't understand right. in that right. situation it right. makes some sense right or even or even being able to understand why they're feeling that right. way right? right that's got to be frustrating right and and like you said you know then then it makes sense where the mm-hmm. anxiety comes from then mm-hmm. it makes sense where mm-hmm. the behavior associated yeah. with ADHD comes yeah. from and so forth absolutely and uh, and yeah just I think I think we, and this isn't unique to this conversation, yeah. but I think we think of the world the mm-hmm. way we see the world. For sure, right? Absolutely. There's a you probably know this quote, Annis Nins. We don't see the world the way it is; we see the world the way we are. Correct. Right? Yeah. And and so we think, mm-hmm. oh, this person just can't make eye contact, or this person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I I don't think we on purpose think that. I think we default to that. Yeah. Right. For sure, it's easiest. Right, it's easiest. Just like we see somebody that's that's not like us, yeah. and yeah. we make assumptions about that right. person. Right? right, that's just the default. Yeah, and that and that really comes around to the that diversity, equity, inclusion right. work. Right, right. That, that one of the reasons we want to have students from different lived experiences, mm-hmm. and different backgrounds, is so that they can all, as they work with each other, figure out. Oh, maybe the world isn't exactly how I see it. Right. Maybe I'm seeing it from my own perspective, and I need to look a little bit differently. And the more perspectives that, that each of us can gain and begin to look at the world, I think the better the picture looks, right? The clearer it is, the more correct it is. And, and I think for our future physicians, just the better physicians they can be as they start to recognize that the world looks different to other people. Yeah. I mean, you know, we see this in almost any industry, yeah. that when we have a uh, a workforce that has different yeah. perspectives, they usually yield a better product. Better. Mm-hmm. And in medicine, that becomes even more important. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, because if we if we only know one way to look at a problem, you know yeah. the old saying: if you if you only have a oh, hammer, hammer, everything looks like nail. a nail. Absolutely. Right. And so, um, but yeah, being able to have those mm-hmm. because 
we have whatever experience we have, sure. right? But if we can learn from the experiences of people around yeah. us who are different, right? Wow, that's so valuable. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the goal. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the the autism side of it. What are some sure. of the things that uh, you see mm-hmm. as some of the major roadblocks right now? Oh, sure, in diagnosis, right? Yeah. So one is the the available providers mm-hmm. uh, with who are trained to do that. I think it's it's like in my field in developmental pediatrics, there's not a lot of us. There well, aren't, there aren't a lot of programs. There's one, right? Well, there's one here, <laughs> right? Yeah, there, there's one here. Um, there are other there are others, you know, uh, fields. Neuropsychologists, psychologists will, will do yeah. testing and diagnosis, which is great. Pediatricians get some training during residency to be able to diagnose, but a lot of them don't feel comfortable enough with the amount of training they've had to do that. Um, so there's just a lack of, of people. Um, the, unfortunately, the way our insurance system is set up also makes it difficult because oftentimes psychologists and neuropsychologists are kind of even taken out of that diagnostic picture because most insurance companies won't pay for those services, right? They, it's those, that type of testing is mandated through the school districts. Right, under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So they say, well, we don't have to pay for that. You can get it through school. So they don't. So unless you can pay for that, then, then kids don't have access to that. In, like I said, in my field, there just aren't a lot, right? In, in some, again, some aren't available because there might be cash only based on the low reimbursement rates uh, for what I do, which is understandable, right? So you start cutting out people's access. Yeah, if I can just say this, but yeah. cash only then speaking of cutting out, right. that cuts out a pretty significant absolutely. portion of the population. A big portion of the cut. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so, so you're, you're left with a large group of people fighting for very limited resources, mm-hmm. right, in, in the diagnostic field. And it's not much different in the therapy, right? So you have this big kind of backup in the pipeline of diagnosis, but, but as you move them through in the treatment side, and we're getting better, fortunately, in, in Nevada, at least we've gotten better over the last you know, 10 years that I've been here. There are more options. And so kids do get in faster. But, but even then, if they come to see me and I do an evaluation and I do a diagnosis and then they start therapy, chances are at some point the insurance company is going to come back and say they need another evaluation. And sometimes a medical evaluation isn't good enough. What they want is a neuropsychological or psychological evaluation. It seems kind of tough when you need to have this for the insurance company, but we're not going to pay for it. Yeah, and the people that ideally the people you're dealing with are very young, right? right? So it's tough to have a it's psychological evaluation. That. Yeah. At that point. So as they get older, that's usually when they start to say, "Oh, well, they need this type of evaluation." But again, it's it's a financial, unfortunately, a financial issue. You know that they don't have access to to be able to do that, so it's it's a uh, it's not an easy system to navigate. Uh, our, fortunately, one of the things that our state has done really well is many years ago before I got here, they set up this autism treatment assistance program. So this is a state agency that helps families who are uninsured or underinsured to be able to access services, and that's great and that's super helpful. Um, it's not an easy program to navigate, but it exists, so we have something. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for families to get through the whole process from diagnosis to treatment. It's difficult. So um, in, in Nevada, mm-hmm. um, somebody who uh, for in some way mm-hmm. says, I would like for my child to be diagnosed because mm-hmm. I want to find out what's happening. Sure. From that point, mm-hmm. presuming that, that 
they're able to navigate the system in a reasonable way yeah. to the point that they actually start having some type of treatment, yeah. how long is that process? That's a good research question. I can kind of only tell you from, from my experience. I would say it's variable, to be honest, but I would say more than a year. Yeah. Usually more than a year, sometimes much more than a year, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's if you can navigate the system. That's if you can navigate the system. Right. Yeah. It's, it, it just makes it so difficult. And then, you know, again, going back to the other issue, the mm-hmm. second of the issues, mm-hmm. then if you are not a native English right. speaker, right. Uh, you're, you're uh, not a citizen, you, you know, all of these things. Mm-hmm. Additional obstacles. You, you may just quit. Right. 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 Along the way. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. And it's, it's time. And remember, it's time, right? Because we're talking about early intervention, how important that is. It's lost time. And it's really important time. So, yeah, it's disheartening. It's, you know, it gets back to the point that you made before, mm-hmm. a role that is not taught in medical schools as, as far as I know, yeah. and that is being a teacher yeah. as a physician, right? Yeah. Being a physician teacher. Yeah. Right. And in the role of an educator as a physician, mm-hmm. is a, as a healthcare provider, mm-hmm. is incredibly important. Absolutely. And yet, I don't know that we do a good job in med school. No, it's a it, yeah. No, it's a, it's a critical part. And it's fortunately, I mean, what I've seen the trend is that we're doing better. Mm-hmm. There's more emphasis on that, especially during residency. During residencies, I think residency programs have done better in physicians as educators. Really, really instilling that in in their residents and and we've done some in the school and i think it's getting better because it's so important and and honestly i i see it in my own patient population right if if the patients are better educated from the very beginning about say development if they know okay my child is supposed to do this at this age and this at this age and this other at this age and if they're not that's a concern then those kids are going to come to attention sooner right because they're they're, they become part of the healthcare team because they've been educated and that's great. That's how it's supposed to work. And I assume in adult medicine it's the same, right? If, if a doctor, you know, if my doctor explains to me, oh, this is why you need to take your high blood pressure medication, or this is what you should do when this happens, I'm more part of my own healthcare. Mm-hmm. Right? And my healthcare gets better. So, yeah, the educator piece is really important. Yeah, and, and then to, uh, to tie it back to something that you had said before, mm-hmm. if, if in your healthcare training, you experience a variety of different perspectives yeah. from a variety of different people. Yeah. It allows you to educate even more. Right, right. right. With, with more compassion, right. more empathy, more understanding right. of where they might be coming from and why, why one group may or may not want to do a certain therapy, right, and, and be able to talk through that instead of be upset that they don't want to listen to what I'm saying. It's, the, the word empathy is so important here. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and, and to be clear, I mean, we know each other well enough that you know mm-hmm. I'm not casting stones yeah. in any direction. I'm saying this with empathy. My yeah. heart goes out to people who, yeah. anyone who has a difficult time navigating the medical system, sure. especially in situations that are stressful and mm-hmm. um, it, it's just got to be so difficult. And then right. you add these other right. hurdles on top of it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, and, and and this is, I think, you know, getting back to some of the ideas before, you mm-hmm. reach all the way down into junior high school mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the pipeline mm-hmm. because these aren't these aren't like one lecture in a, in no, a med right. class, right, right. right. to no, do no. this. Absolutely. Yeah, the, you know, the, the so my, in, in my own story, right, in my own pediatrician, you know, encouraging me to 
do that. And mm-hmm. then, and I should say, my dad, same, also said, you know, when I thought I want to be dark, absolutely, like without that, you can do that, yeah. right? So I, so I had a lot of support, but in that in that age, which was around middle school, where somebody, you know, told me, oh yeah, that's a great, you should do that, like gives you the idea that oh that's a possibility, right? So those neurons start to fire. Well, in these in these kids in our pipeline programs, that's the idea, right? Because again, they probably don't have anybody in healthcare, right. you know, no physicians in their family. They have probably never thought about it. They may not even go see their primary care doctor regularly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was fortunate that I did, and maybe that they don't. Maybe they don't even have one. So their best contact, or maybe their only contact, is with these medical students who go and talk to them in their schools, and hopefully they get the message of, oh yeah, I could do this, and also start to feel like, oh, this would be really cool, and that can then drive them, because it's not easy, right? You have to you have to want to do it. Um, and, and I'm, I'm so grateful for the medical students that we have, right. Who are willing yeah. to, to go and to do those things with these students, put that time in away from their studies to help these kids, right. To help them through this pipeline program that will hopefully be beneficial for them and, and their families someday. I, I, you know, I've been consistently impressed mm-hmm. with our students, with yeah. the, um, the diversity that we see in our class mm-hmm. diversity mm-hmm. to find a lot of different ways, first generation students, Absolutely. you know, I think routinely we have uh, more female medical mm-hmm. students and male mm-hmm. medical students mm-hmm. and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, and then that they reach into the, yeah. the community. You know, one of the things that you've mentioned, Barbara Atkinson earlier, mm-hmm. one of the things that she really uh, made sure of when she started the school mm-hmm. was this idea of reaching into the community. Yeah. Right, and serving the underserved, mm-hmm. and I, and it's you know we've now uh, been through a few different deans, but it's yeah. it's one of the things that I I love about the program is it's always made it's yeah. always been consistent. Absolutely, yeah. because we know that that's that's really long term. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to help our community, right? Helping these kids come through, the kids in our own community, come through, be educated, stay, right, and provide help in our community. We know that. We know that that doctors who have come from underserved communities are more likely to serve those communities, right? Because it's hard work, but they're more more likely to do it, especially if there's a language issue, mm-hmm. right? They're just more likely to do it. So our our classes that we've admitted, and I think it speaks to our admissions process. Really, what we value is is students who are are not just interested in practicing medicine in its narrow sense of taking care of patients. They're really interested in helping people, right? And, and, and so they do these things. So they go out to the community and they help these students in middle school and in high school. Um, those are the kind of students we're looking for, right? Because that's, that's who we want to graduate because those feelings of wanting to help broadly will go with them. You know, it's interesting. One of the, one of the statistics about compassion mm-hmm. in medical school is that it goes down through medical school, right? Yeah. People come right. in with a certain level of compassion, a certain idealism and right. so forth. And some of that kind of gets beaten out of them but, Sadly, as they yes. go through. Right. But but I think, and some of that is healthy, right? Yeah. Because if you're overly yeah. compassionate, right. it's going to be tough for you to make right. the right decision right. at times. Mm-hmm. But I I think that, that, you know, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. we seem to have a pretty good mix. We do. Right? We do. And Strike a good balance. Yeah. 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 But it, it's just so important. So, yeah. um, so we've got a two-part question here. Mm-hmm. The second part of it is going to say future of, of medicine, right? Okay. What okay. you think are the, where we're going with this. But okay. the other one is, how do we help 
Mm-hmm. And, and the we could be anybody, right? Mm-hmm. It could be people mm-hmm. in healthcare. It could be just uh, anybody. Yeah. How can we help with, and, and we have two intermingled stories, yeah. right? The yeah. dance is still going on. Yeah. How can we help with the, the uh, opening of perspective and how can we help with yeah. those individuals who have autism spectrum disorder? Sure. So, so I think on one hand, the speaking about healthcare and, and, and futures in healthcare, I, I think investing a little bit of time and interest in, in individuals, like like what happened in my story, mm-hmm. right? Investing a little bit of time in somebody can pay big dividends, right? It can lead them to things they didn't think were possible. So being open and available to to do that, right? And that requires some degree of selflessness, right? Because it takes a little bit of time, and it doesn't have to be a lot of time, but but being aware of what your comments and your encouragement can do and giving those, right? That can make a big difference. On the, on the side of autism or, or you know, patients with neurodiversity, again, encouragement, right? Encouragement of, of hey, this isn't, this isn't the end, right? This is, this is something that has its own set of issues. Let's work on them. There's hope there. There's things that we can do. We can help, right? Don't give up because you don't know where you're going to be able to end up right and, and so that that information to both groups right keep working keep pushing through and having support along the way because those mm-hmm. are hard roads will get them further right either the group so i think it's incumbent upon us where we can where we find ourselves individually to be that support and to give that that help the you know that that piece of it i think one of the things that's really interesting to me about that mm-hmm. is when if we, and I don't know if this is an appropriate way to think about it, but I, th- you know, we know autism spectrum disorder, right? Mm-hmm. It's a spectrum. Mm-hmm. But that's when you kind of narrow down and seeing those individuals that are on that yeah, spectrum. Right. But that spectrum is part of the whole spectrum. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Oh, yeah. And so if we think of ourselves, uh-huh. all of us are someplace Somewhere. on that spectrum. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And so thinking about it in a, us versus them or that right. kind of thing. It just doesn't help any of us. No, no, right. no, you're absolutely right. And so, and, and exactly to your point, mm-hmm. if we think about the, you know, we're all on, on the spectrum, the big <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then how can we reach out to those individuals? Yeah. Regardless of their mm-hmm. situation mm-hmm. to, to spend an extra moment. You yeah. know, I think about how many opportunities we have to yeah. do that. We, you know, somebody's at a cash register and or somebody's giving yeah. directions. Yeah. Um, you know, do they point to something or do they walk you over? Right. Right. To the right. place. Yeah. Do they make eye contact? Do they say thank mm-hmm. you? Do, I mean, there are little things a lot of times yeah. that make a big difference. 100%. And, and I don't know. Like, I w- it would be really interesting mm-hmm. to go back to your pediatrician yeah. and say, did you know that you were making this kind <laughs> of a difference? Right. I'm guessing it's would say I'm guessing no. no. Yeah, I'm guessing no. Yeah, because I, I think you know, and I think you you do the same thing. There, mm-hmm. there, there are people that are sitting in that pipeline program that mm-hmm. are listening to you mm-hmm. that you may never see again in your life, mm-hmm. and you made a significant impact on. Yeah, and I think we all have these opportunities. Yeah, if, we do. if we take them. If we take right. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and then the other side, the the diversity side mm-hmm. of it. You know, that spectrum that we talked about, the spectrum. Yeah. Then you embrace, you know, your the people who are on on it with you. Right. 
right? Right, and you're able to do this. Yeah. So let me, uh, I'm gonna change gears a little sure, bit. Sure, sure. Um, you know, we've been talking about your story, the, mm-hmm. the, um, your hero's journey. And <laughs> yeah. um, so what, what is your North Star? Like what is it, the thing that you see and that yeah. is immovable for you? Yeah, sure. So, so and I, th- I was actually thinking about that as, as you were talking a second ago. So I, I would say that my North Star is, is two things. So I think, I think it's my faith and I think it's my family. And, and related to my faith, I think um, one of the things that, that is my North Star is, um, in, in my religion, what we refer to as the second great commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it, is you see people as your neighbor. doesn't matter what they look like, where they're from, how they think. If you see them all as part of your neighborhood, uh-huh. <laughs> I think it's easier, right? Yeah. It's easier to take opportunities to help and to be kind um, and yeah, those little things make a difference. So that's, that's one of the things that, that motivates me, yeah. right? To, to, to recognize that, um, I'm in the same boat with everybody else, right? And then there's going to be times where I have the opportunity to share and to help and to give. And there's going to be times where I need that help and that sharing and that giving. And so if we're going to make it better, and I think all of us have to be, play a part in that instead of seeing our differences mm-hmm. and focusing on, um, you know, you don't think like me, you don't look like me. And because of that, you know, or you don't even agree with me, then you're out. It's, it's, so I want to get to the to part number two in yeah. a second. But what you just said, mm-hmm. you know, when somebody is different, mm-hmm. we have a choice of either yeah. to say, I'm going to push you away because you're different. or I'm right. going to bring you in because I want to learn about how we're different. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And it's so and, and that's a choice that a we choice. have. Mm-hmm. Right, and wouldn't mm-hmm. it be wonderful if we made the choice of bringing people in more yeah. often? Yeah, we'd be in a much better situation. Yeah, nationwide. Yeah, yeah, and family, <laughs> and family. Yeah, family's big. You know, the the there's a quote I like that the things that matter most are the things that last the longest, mm. and family lasts. Right, and so that's taking the time to develop that base is really important because when you have a good base or good foundation. You can withstand a lot of stuff, right? It's not going to shake you. Um, so that, so that, the the development of that, the time that's required to do that, I think, is really important and totally worthwhile. It gets back to the idea of of creating moments, right, and yeah. and taking yeah. just a little bit extra time mm-hmm. to connect right. with people, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I wish, you know, in 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 my journey in life so far, you know, their medical school was hard. Residency was hard. Fellowship was was not as hard, but all of it time consuming. Mm-hmm. And and I think I, I look back now and I think I would tell myself, enjoy the moment. You know, take the time, make those moments when you have them, and stop thinking about, oh, when I have time, or when something is done. You know, then I'll enjoy this or that or whatever. Yeah, I think it's really important to just enjoy. I know. don't. Uh, someone in the introduction to uh, graduate school, like mm-hmm. an orientation, mm-hmm. and said, she said, uh, during this time in your life, you're going to be underpaid, overworked, and probably happier than you'll ever be. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, what? what? Yeah. And it's right. Yeah. Because, not because of the overwork or underpaid, right, right. But, but the connections, yeah. right? The connections mm-hmm. that you made. And that's, that's really where so that's, much of the joy comes in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when, you know, when I say family... There's blood family, mm-hmm. right? But then 
there's your neighbor family. Right. And I think you can develop just as strong and worthwhile bonds with them as you can with your own family. Yeah, absolutely. And all of it brings joy. Well, you just had an excellent segue into the last question. Okay. Okay. Moments of joy mm-hmm. for you. Sure. Uh, I know you got a whole slew of kids, so I'm I only going to give you two <laughs> okay. uh, moments of joy for sure. the kids. Okay. But okay. outside of that, or mm-hmm. in addition to that. So okay. you got two with the kids, and okay. let's hear three or and four some others. others. Yeah. Okay. So I would say um, one is uh, when my kids are together. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and when when they were younger, when I was, again, going through my educational process, it wasn't as joyful as it could have been or as it probably was. And I just didn't recognize it. Mm-hmm. Right? I was too stressed out. Mm-hmm. Um, but but seeing them together now is is really neat. We last last year we were able to do a family vacation, everybody together. And that was great that I really enjoyed that. There were moments of that where I saw all of them together. And that was joy. That where was did great. you go? We went to uh, Cancun. Just oh, south nice. of Cancun, yeah. by Akumal. Nice. Yeah, Very fun. nice. Five kids? Seven. Seven. Mm-hmm. Okay, snuck a couple in there. Yeah, that's the last yeah. time I looked. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, I'd say another one was uh, I have two grandkids now. And so grandkids are a whole other level of joy. And so spending time with them is is fantastic. Not not very long ago, maybe a couple weeks ago, my grandson, who's sometimes a little grouchy, um, they were leaving, and he told his mom something along the lines of, oh, I want to stay with Pops. That's what they call me as Pops. Uh-huh. And that was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I've made it. <laughs> I've arrived. Yeah, that was great. How old are the grandkids? Four and two. Nice. Yeah. Very yeah, nice. It was great. Four and three. Actually, he's three now. Yeah. Uh, other moments of joy? Um, so professionally, you know, I think my moments of joy are when I'm talking to families, and we cross that that line of, I don't want to know, to I understand, and I, I know that I can help. Mm-hmm. I, I know that there's hope now. That's really fulfilling for me. There's a lot of joy there in, in just watching them cross that and know, like, okay, they're going to be okay, right? It's going to be all right. Um, other moments, you know, are you know, just going back to, to my faith is when I have the opportunity to help somebody, right? When I have the opportunity to provide support or to just listen, uh, to see um, them feel better simply because I showed love or interest in them. That's, that's great. That feels good, right? Like it should. You know, it's interesting. Uh, on this podcast, mm-hmm. we have this question about moments yeah. of joy. Yeah. And I think this is true. Uh, almost everybody talks about graduating medical school or mm-hmm. winning an mm-hmm. award or those things. Yeah. It's understandable, yeah, yeah, right? Sure, of sure. course. Um, but the, the joy of contribution that you're talking about, yeah. um, when, you, when you look at the science of happiness, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to be too clinical about yeah. this, but when you look at the science of happiness, uh, being giving away, mm-hmm. right, and contributing to others mm-hmm. becomes the longest-lasting yeah. happiness. Absolutely. And as much as I know that from yeah. the, from the science of it, right. listening to you talk yeah. about it, uh-huh. wow, wow, <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. So thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. You bet. Grazie mille. Grazie. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the podcast and you received the warm welcome that Dr. Gaspar de Alba gives to everyone. 
Thanks for listening. As always, we're grateful for your time and attention. If you enjoyed the episode, please check out our other podcasts on Spotify and Apple. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with those you care about. Thank you so much for listening.